Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. So we'll go back to Romans, Romans chapter 2. And I am going to do an entire chapter of the Bible today in one uh, day. So you will be getting out of here at about 3.30 this afternoon. <laughs> and, uh, and that's fine. But I'm going to read the first 11 verses here. And uh, they'll be up on the screens there. And then, uh, and then I'll pray and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do this thing. But Romans 2, we got through Romans chapter 1 in two weeks, uh, about a month ago. And, uh, and so we pick up in Romans 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. This is Paul writing. Every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Let's pray, and then, and then we'll look at this. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that we get to be a part of this church family. I thank you by your Holy Spirit, what you're doing through the, you know, Heidi and Kurt and that garden, the distribution uh, warehouse, Father, the, the lives that are being touched at this church. I just feel so lucky to be a part of it, and I thank you for the fact that we are growing in love here in this church. And I just pray this morning, Lord Jesus, we look at your words. These are your words. These are not my words. I just pray that your Holy Spirit, there's many people here this morning, some in need of encouragement, Jesus, some in need of, of a, a straightening out, some in need of a warning. Um, all of us here, though, Lord Jesus, needing a touch from your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would touch each one of us in the way that we need to be touched and spoken to. In your name we pray. Amen. So there's a whole bunch of things going on in this passage. But before we get to them, to, to them and, and again, like, there is just lots of different things. And as you know, I was struggling as I was starting this message this week, you could preach this, this, this chapter from five or six or seven different angles. There's just lots of different things we could look at. There's lots of different layers. But as I was looking at the different layers, at one point I just, uh, on Wednesday, I just realized, I stepped back, I thought, what's the one thing that just stands above everything in these first 11 verses? There's lots of layers, lots of subtleties, lots of different places we can look at, all of them very important, lots of things Paul is saying, and we really could meditate on this passage for a long time and, and continue to get more and more out of it. But I thought, you know, if we get through this chapter and I don't look at this one thing that just sticks out above all the rest, then we've really missed it. And the one thing in this chapter, there is one thing that is just glaring at us that we need to stop, that we need to pay attention to, and that is that at some point, all of us here and every human being on the earth is going to stand before God on Judgment Day, and what happens on that day is going to determine our destiny for all of eternity. There is eternity coming. 
Verses 7 and 8 up there, he says, if we go back there, Darlene, thank you. He will render to each one according to his works. That verse is going to happen to each of us. There is a day coming when we will give account of our lives before the God who made all of the universe and all of us. And we're going to stand before him, and on the other side of that day is forever. You know, we get so caught up in just life, and of course we do. And there's busyness, and there's family, and there's work, and there's church, and there's all the things uh, that make up life. And of course, none of us has ever lived in eternity yet, so all we know is this life. And so it's, it's, uh, it's you know, there's, it's, there's a reason why we think mostly about this life. But then we come across passages like this from time to time, and they force us to stop and think that a day is coming, and on the other side of that day is eternity, and someday, not very far from here, we're going to look back in this life that so consumed all of our thoughts and all of our energy and all of our time that feels so big to us now while we're in the middle of it was just this little speck of time that passed. In Psalms, David says that a man's life just passes like grass. That this life that feels so big to us now and the issues inside of this life which seem so big to us right now and some of the things that seem to take so long that we're going through right now that all of this someday we're going to look back and it was like this much, it was a speck. And on the other side of the speck is eternity that goes on forever and ever and ever. And before you go into eternity, there's this doorway and we will stand before God himself at his throne. And what happens on that day will determine how we spend not the speck, but how we spend the rest of eternity, the line that goes on forever and ever and ever. And he will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience, patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So some will go into eternity and they will experience eternal life. More joy, more glory, more love, more peace than we can even possibly scratch the surface of imagining right now. We will go into eternity and experience that forever and ever and ever, every moment forever after that. But for others, based on how we live life in the speck. But for others, based on how they live life in this little speck that is just passing. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And so I can't think of a more important thing for us, especially at church, to think of from time to time regularly, but the fact of eternity, the existence that all of us are headed for eternity. All of us will live forever and ever and ever, somewhere, somehow. And how we live now matters. And the, the reason I want to bring it up is because we think about this truth less and less in our culture. Our culture is obsessed. Our culture is the best culture in history at making people forget about this fact. Our culture has a PhD doctorate degree in making people not think about the big picture. Our culture is obsessed with fun and lots of the fun, perfectly good things. Sports and hobbies, like hobbies are great. Sports, that's fantastic. You know, video games, fine. I, I never really got into them, but I hear that they're amazing. So some of them are great, I guess. And, and, and TV and social media and movies and any one of these things, perfectly fine and good in itself, as long as you're not watching something bad or doing something bad. But all these things, perfectly fine and good in themselves, trips and vacations, 
wonderful. Cottages, exotic locations. There's all this perfectly fine and good stuff. But what our culture does is let us so fill up our lives with these things that we forget that this lifetime is just a passing speck. And we forget to live for the forever that's coming. We forget that how we live right now affects our destiny into forever. But we become so consumed with fun, which is a great thing. I love fun. I absolutely love fun. I was just playing with my son Charlie the other day, and none of you will allow me to babysit your kids after I tell you this story. <laughs> which is not a bad thing anyway. But speaking of fun, I really shouldn't even tell this story. Um, I dropped him off of our uh, second floor balcony head first onto the stairs below, and uh, I, there was a mattress there. But anyway, we were sitting. LaDon wasn't home, and uh, <laughs> obviously. And when she's gone, well, I mean, what can I say? We're sitting around supper. What are we going to do tonight? Mom's not here. And somehow this idea cooks up. Why don't we drop Charlie head first off of the second floor into our bi-level basement there? And uh, so we put a mattress up there. I dropped him head first. He bounced off, hit the wall at the bottom. I thought, oh, my goodness. And he gets up. That was awesome. <laughs> Let's do that again. So I'm not against fun. I love fun. Um, and I was hoping that Charlie would be spurred to think about eternity as he dangled there above the railing. But um, really, that had nothing to do with the message. But anyway... But we're so obsessed with fun that we've forgotten that there's something big coming. You know, I went into a bookstore uh, several years ago. I saw a book title, and my point is not to criticize this book. I, I, in fact, I've never read the book, but I think that the title captures some of the way that we're living today. So my criticism is not of the book. What I'm criticizing is I think that as a Christian culture, we've begun to live according to what this statement says. But I saw a book in the, in the Christian bookstore. It was a bestseller, and it was called Your Best Life Now. And I think many of us as Christians, as a Christian culture, that actually sums up how many of us are living. We are trying our absolute best to live our best life right now. I want to squeeze as much fun, as much happiness, as much success, as much experiences out of my life right now. I want to live my best life now. Now, on the surface, that doesn't sound like such a bad thing, but did you know that the Bible does not teach that we should have our best life now? This book does not teach your best life now. Now, again, I don't know what that book actually said on the inside, so my criticism is not of the book, but the statement, how many of us are living, is we are living for our best life now. And this book does not teach that we should be thinking about, that we should be striving for, or that we should be seeking our best life now. This book tells us that this life will often be sucky, as my kids would say. But that we live in this little speck, which can often be sucky, very sucky, in order that we can have our best life in eternity, this book is consumed with you living your best life later, not now. And I could take you to many quotes. We could start with the Gospels, because I know that there's often people out there, they pull out their little favorite positive thinking blessing verses, most of which are pulled completely out of context. 
But we could take a trip through the Gospels. Jesus said, in this lifetime, you will be hated, Matthew 10 and several other places. He said, in this lifetime, you will be persecuted, Matthew 24 and several other places. He said, in this lifetime, you will have trouble and tribulation, John 16. So, he said, pick up your cross, and a cross is not a nice little trinket like what we buy in the stores now. That was, that was a symbol of torment and pain in Jesus' day. He said, so pick up your cross. In this lifetime, it's not about your best life now. Life now. It's about picking up your cross now in this lifetime so later you can have your best life. Jesus' whole life message was don't live for the now, live for eternity. That's what he said here in Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. That's actually a command. It's not a suggestion. Do not lay up treasures here. This lifetime is this long. Why would you live for now? Do not lay up treasures for yourselves here on earth where moth and rust destroy because whatever treasures you pick up here anyway are going to be gone this quickly because this lifetime is a speck in the grand scheme of eternity. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven in eternity because they're going to last forever, right? Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we could go right into Paul, out of Jesus. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, I've often quoted this verse over the last year, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul didn't say, I'm living for my best life now. And then after death, I guess I have my fire insurance card, I'll go to heaven and hopefully that's fine too. He didn't say, for to me to live is as much success and comfort and fun and memories as I can squeeze out of this lifetime right now, and then when I die, I get heaven as well. He said, no, 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 no. I'm not living for my best life now. I'm not living for myself now at all. I'm living for Jesus now. And then gain is after I die into eternity. That's when I get to squeeze out the happiness and the ease and the comfort and the success. That's coming later. Now, of course, when I say this, of course, are there advantages? Is everything just doom and gloom in this lifetime? No. And are there benefits from Jesus in this lifetime already? Absolutely. I mean, he sets us free from bondage. Amen. Amen. And he gives us joy, and he fills us with love. And truly, joy in him is better than the joy that the, that the world gives anyway. Yes, all that is true. But if by your best life now, we are living how so many Christians are living, which is squeeze as much out of the world as I can right now, the Bible doesn't teach it. In fact, as Jesus said, do not lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. In fact, if we were to sit down with Paul here today, and I would love to have him here, um, but someday, right? If we were to sit him down and say, Paul, tell us about your best life now. Like, tell us the secrets of how happy and successful your life was. And then he would tell us this. Okay, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Paul tells us about his best life now. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Okay. And he just calmly says it, okay, 39 lashes with a whip. I've never been whipped before. I, I was spanked as a kid, and, and I thank God for that. Um, but 39 lashes with a whip, that hurts really bad. And he didn't just have it one time, five times. And he didn't just have this, like, randomly, like he just woke up in the morning and got whipped. He had it as a direct result of his following Jesus. So he keeps going. Three times I was beaten with rods. Okay, just, just throw that in. A little bit of 
you know, it's good to have a couple of different ways of being beaten. Once I was stoned. I know some of you here have been stoned as well, but not with rocks, okay? <laughs> that took some of you longer to get than others. I've never heard quite a wave like that. I heard a little cascade giggling, and then all of a sudden it got louder. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day. All of this is a direct result of his following Jesus. Three times shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift at sea. Like That's my worst nightmare. Can you imagine floating in the sea with sharks at night through a day, all because you love Jesus, on frequent journeys, not once or twice. I went on a little short-term missions trip. Frequent journeys. And back then, it, you weren't driving around, air conditioning, stopping at holiday inns for the evening. Traveling was dangerous. Traveling was hot. Traveling was cold. Traveling was very uncomfortable. Frequent journeys. In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship. Following Jesus wasn't just Oh, man, I'm just so at peace. I just, oh, it's so easy. It's just so fun. Toil and hardship was his life following Jesus because he was following Jesus. Toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Those of you who feel anxiety ever, I just love anytime Paul talks about feeling anxiety. There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. That's Paul talking about his best life now. See, Paul had a totally different expectation of life in the spec than most of us do. Many of us, bad things like this happen to us, we get upset. The reason we get upset is because we're expecting life now to be good. Paul didn't expect life now to be good. He says, I'm living now for, for the future, for the forever. And this is how Hebrews, Hebrews tells us this is how all the saints of old have always viewed life here on earth. Hebrews chapter 11, these, that's speaking of the saints, all died in faith, not, not, having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Did you know that there are lots of things that God has promised us that we don't get until eternity? There's lots of things he's promised us that we can get little pieces of now, like healing. Well, thank God he does heal today. But he doesn't heal all of us all the time, and lots of us have to suffer, and unless he comes back first, we're all gonna die. There's lots of promises we don't get till eternity. You know, we can experience a measure of his peace now, but there also just comes times when, as Stephen was talking about Learn to Love last week, where we're just overwhelmed. Which is why the saints of old view life on earth as a speck and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They weren't living for this. We're earth, they viewed themselves as just passing through. We're just strangers and exiles here. We're living for a different life. We're living for a different time. It's actually okay if things go bad for me here. I'm not going to get mad about that because I'm not living for the here. I'm passing through. I'm a stranger. I'm an exile on my way to a better place. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They didn't find it here. See, too many Christians in the West today have made their homeland here in this place, in this country, in this time. 
They've made this their homeland because this is where they're comfortable. This is where they get their joy. This is where they get their happiness. But that's not what the saints do. The saints are seeking a homeland. They haven't got to their homeland yet. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I've just taken you on a little quick joyride through the scriptures to show you that the Bible teaches us that we don't belong here this, in this speck. We are living here for eternity. And when that mindset, if it can ever grab, and it hasn't fully grabbed in my heart either, we all struggle with this, and I'm just along with you guys. I'm so often distracted by this world. It's a struggle, and we pray, and even as I preach this, I'm preaching myself into this truth too. But more and more, I'm wanting to grab a hold of this truth, and if we can ever grab this truth, this eternity mindset, this eternal focus, if it ever grabs into our hearts really, really deep, it'll change absolutely everything, everything, the way we live. And I could go on and on. I could tell you a dozen ways in which your life will be radically changed, which you'll make different decisions, and you'll do different things, and you'll think differently, and you'll feel differently. I could tell you a dozen different ways having an eternal mindset will radically change your life. But I just want to tell you one. It will change how you view suffering and disappointment. It will change how you view suffering and disappointment. Many Christians today get angry or bitter or upset with God when they go through a period of suffering that lasts a length of time. So many of us, when we first hit the suffering, we're real good at praying at the beginning. Oh God, this is really hurting. And we pray and we pray and pray. And thank God, he often answers our prayers the way we pray them. Like, that's amazing. So you're in the, in the middle of something and you need a healing and sometimes he does heal us. That's amazing. Sometimes, you know, you're praying and there's that situation in your family and he just fixes it right away and it's good. And sometimes you're praying for that and sometimes you're praying for this and he just gives you what you're praying for. But what happens in those many times where he doesn't give you right away what you're praying for? What happens in those cases uh, where you're praying, your, your, your spouse has, has gone, or your marriage has fallen apart, and you're praying for a miracle, for God to restore your marriage. Well, amen, I've seen, there's, and a number of you are sitting here today, I've seen many miracle marriages restored. Just really incredible because God answered prayer. It's awesome. But I also know people, and some of them are here right now this morning, who have prayed, who have been faithful, who are godly people, and their marriage, and they've been praying for years and years and years, and God hasn't restored the marriage. What do you do when he doesn't seem to answer? That's a, that's a good question. What do you do when you are facing anxiety and depression and whatever, and you pray and you pray and pray? We've seen people healed here, and I know other godly people who love Jesus and walk with Jesus, and they walk with some of that stuff for years. What do you do when he doesn't take it away? I know couples here in this church, they prayed to have a baby, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and then miracle, I know half a dozen at least, and God did a miracle, and they were able to have a baby, and we all praise God, amen, but I also know another bunch that have prayed, and prayed, and prayed, and prayed, and God didn't give them a baby. What do you do then? See, how do we view suffering and disappointment? I'll tell you what a lot of Christians in this culture do is on the initial wave, they'll pray. But as this thing stretches out and it goes into months and years, many Christians fall by the wayside because, and whether they say it or not, sometimes it's subconscious, but they get hard and they get bitter towards God. 
They get hard, and they get bitter towards God. And why is that? I'll tell you why that is, or one reason. There's many reasons. I don't want to oversimplify. But I'll tell you one reason. You know, businesses, you thought you heard God tell you to start that business. You thought you heard God give you a promise that he's going to make it successful. And then the thing tanks. And you get mad. Well, God, it couldn't have been God. Why would God do that to me? I'll tell you one reason why we get mad at God when things don't turn out our way and when we have disappointment and suffering that stretches out into years. It's because we don't have a proper perspective of this life and we assume, we subconsciously assume that God owes us to make our life here good already. We just subconsciously assume that we're supposed to have our best life now. But when you actually get an eternity mindset like the saints of old had, and you see some of the suffering that happened with the saints of old, and we could go through the centuries, not just in the Bible, but the saints, uh, Grace Fast had us in a, in a staff prayer time this last week, watch a story, an incredible story of a man in China who was put in prison for 30 years, and at one point, he was beaten repeatedly for taking Bibles and telling people about Jesus. At one point, he even went seven years without hearing the voice of God. And we think, God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. He's supposed to bless us already now, right? And then you listen to this godly man. He must have been now in his 70s or whatever, and we just listened to his testimony, and I was just in tears as he talks about sowing in tears, as he talks about hanging on to Jesus and just refusing to let go. And coming out on the other side, and God has done through the fiery trial, has done something so powerful in that life that there's this fruit. This guy's going into eternity, and he's a huge success in the forever. But many of us in the West have this kind of subconscious assumption that God is supposed to give me my best life now. And if I don't get my best life now, I'm mad at God. He's not coming through for me. But we need to get a radical new mindset. Actually, in this lifetime, the only thing we're owed is suffering. Anything other than suffering is a bonus. Anything other than suffering is a bonus. Jesus promised us in this life, you will have trouble. He promised us. He will not be wrong. And so it's fine to enjoy things in this life. I'm not saying we have to all go out of here and hurt ourselves. You don't have to make suffering come. It'll come when it comes. If you don't have any suffering right now, just wait. Some of you hyper-charismatics are sitting there, you're cursing me! Just go read the Gospels. You'll get cursed enough. Jesus said you will have trouble. So you're going to have trouble. But you don't have to get upset about it because this life is the speck. This life is the speck. And Paul had a revelation. He had a revelation about this suffering that takes you to the next level. He said, in fact, the suffering in this lifetime prepares us, prepares us to be able to receive more success and reward in the next life. I want to read you something powerful here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we do not lose heart. That's a good word for any of you who are suffering right now. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. In other words, we're suffering. On the outside, we're really taking it. We're really in the heat. It's hard. The pressure's there. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, some days you will feel your inner self being renewed day by day, and other days you won't. Your feelings aren't always the best judge of truth anyway. 
For this light and momentary affliction, he can only call it light and momentary because he has a good view of how long eternity is. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us. Actually, it's not just random. The suffering you, f- you face in this life, God is sovereign. There's no suffering in your life that is random. There isn't a health issue that is random. There isn't a family issue that is random. There isn't a business issue that is random. There's a sovereign God who oversees everything that happens on planet Earth. And so if there is suffering in your life, it is there for a reason. Why is it there? Assuming that you're going to respond properly and not in bitterness. It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says that the suffering we go through on this earth is actually preparing us for something. It's like a weightlifter. If a weightlifter wants to go get stronger, he's got to lift heavy enough weights to tear muscle. That makes him sore. After the muscle rests, he can lift heavier weights. And he can just keep doing it, right? Tear the muscle, it repairs, he can lift heavier weights. It's, it's the same with suffering in this lifetime. It's preparing us for a heavier weight of glory. That's what Paul says here, in the future. So what if that thing you're going through right now, someone you really loved died? Physical ailment that won't go away. I know people in this church who've been healed, and I know other people who really love Jesus who've been walking with hurts and physical suffering for many, many years. And it just doesn't go away. What do you do then? And you're praying for that marriage, but it hasn't been restored. But what if you going through that cancer or that ailment or that tough situation that isn't being resolved, what if you going through that is making you stronger for eternity to be able to receive a greater weight of joy, a greater, a greater weight of glory, a greater weight of love and peace in eternity forever, would it be worth it to suffer a bit in the speck in order to have more in the eternity? That's what Paul's talking about. And when that revelation gets deep, deep, deep into our hearts, you can't get bitter against God when you suffer. It's for a reason. So now back to Romans 2. The issue of eternity should grip our hearts because there's a judgment day coming and how you live your life during this little speck of time here on earth will determine your destiny in all of eternity. So let's go back to verse 6. Verse 6, verses 6 to 8. He, God, that's God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who buy patience, it's going to take patience because sometimes you don't want to keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. You, sometimes you don't want to keep loving and living for God because you're going through hard stuff. But to those who by patience in well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, I want to underline something up there according to his works. He will render to each one according to his works. Because some of you are freaking out a little bit right there. I thought Jesus died on the cross to forgive us our sins. I thought it was all grace. So when I stand in judgment, he's not looking at my works because it's all forgiven. Are you saying that someday I'm going to stand in, in front of judgment and all the bad things I've ever done, even though I said sorry for them, God's going to hold me to account for them? No. But you are going to stand account for your works. You say, I, but I thought there was grace. I'm going to explain it, but we just need to look at a bit of context here, okay? 
I just need to give you a bit of context now for this chapter, and then we're going to come back to that question about being judged for our works. And how does that work? And how does forgiveness work? And doesn't God forget our sins when, when he forgives us? We'll get back to that. First of all, let's talk about who is Paul specifically talking to in this chapter. It's really important. Okay? Because uh, throughout the book of, the, of Romans, Paul will jump back and forth. Sometimes he's speaking to Gentile Christians, sometimes he's speaking to Jewish Christians, sometimes he's speaking to all Christians, sometimes he's speaking to Gentile unbelievers, sometimes he's speaking specifically to his fellow people, the Jews, Jewish unbelievers. Okay? In this chapter 2, and you're going to see in a little bit, I'll show you the verse in just a little bit, Uh, there's a bunch of them actually, but in chapter 2, it's always, in Romans, it's always clear who he's talking to. In chapter 2, he's specifically speaking to his fellow Jews, Jewish people who are resisting the gospel. And the reason we know that is we're going to see in just a little bit, in a bunch of verses, he uses the personal pronoun you when he's talking to the Jews. He says, you Jews. So we know in this chapter, he's speaking specifically to Jews who are resisting the gospel. Okay? And it's all going to make sense. We're going to come back to according to your works. We just have to get a bit of context. So why would Paul in chapter 2 be talking specifically to Jews who are resisting the gospel? I'll tell you why. Because there's a bunch of them, because remember, in this first part of Romans, Paul is giving us the plan of salvation. But before he can tell us the plan of salvation, he first has to show us that we need to be saved from something, right? And we looked at that in Romans chapter 1, that judgment is coming, and so we are in need of a Savior. Now in chapter 2, before he gets to the plan of salvation, he's got to hit a group of people, religious Jews, who are resisting the gospel. Why would he have to talk to them first before he talks about the plan of salvation? Well, the reason is because they didn't think they needed to be saved. One of the reasons a lot of the religious Jews in Paul's day were resisting the gospel is because they didn't think they needed to be saved. You say, why wouldn't they think they needed to be saved? It's just obvious to all of us Christians today that everybody needs to be saved. They didn't think they needed to be saved because in Genesis 12, God made an everlasting covenant with their forefather Abraham, and it's a forever covenant. Okay, and God said to Abraham, I'm making a covenant with you and your descendants from now and forever. Okay, and the sign of the covenant will be circumcision, okay? And so here's a couple thousand years later, you've got all these religious Jews living in Paul's time, and they, and they look, they take Paul to Genesis 12, and they say, God made a forever covenant with our forefather, Abraham, and all of his descendants, and the sign of that covenant is circumcision. Therefore, we're in the covenant. We're already part of God's people. We don't need Jesus. We don't need grace. We don't need forgiveness. We're already part of God's family. Okay? And the second reason why they thought they were already saved is because God had given them the law. So they said, we have circumcision, we're descendants of Abraham, we have the covenant, and we have the law. So between those two things, we know the law, we've got circumcision, we are Jews, so we are saved. And so Paul in this chapter is trying to smash their false sense of security and show them that they too need salvation. That's what chapter 2 is all about. In fact, if you have your Bible here, I know sometimes people feel like Romans is a really complicated book. You might want to just write that around chapter 2 so you remember it in the future. Paul is writing chapter 2 of Romans to Jews, religious Jews, who don't think they need to be saved. And he's trying to smash their sense of false security so that they will see that they actually need to be saved by Jesus. Okay? And so his whole point is that it doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or not. It doesn't matter if you know the law or not. What matters is are you actually living the law? Are you actually obeying God? Are you actually walking with him? Circumcision is just supposed to be an outward sign of something that's happening in the heart. That's going to be his point. Okay, so if we keep reading verse 12, and we're just going to read a big chunk now. 
And we're going to see Paul make this, this point that it's not about it, that outward circumcision was just, it was just an outward symbol of something that was supposed to be in the heart. You need to actually be walking with God and obeying him, right? So he says this, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law, speaking out of these religious Jews, who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So it's not just having the law that saves you, it's living the law. And if we skip ahead a couple of verses, he says this, verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew, so there's that pronoun. This is how we know he's talking to Jews because he says you. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure, so these Jews, these religious Jews, many of them felt very good about themselves. You know, we have the Bible, their old, our Old Testament, and the rest of the world is just a bunch of ignorant pagans. And we know who the real God is, okay? So they were very, you know, proud. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And so Paul says, your circumcision doesn't count for anything if you're not walking the walk. God is looking for an inner reality of you actually walking with him. And as a result, see, the, the religious Jews were really good at keeping some laws. They were really good at keeping the Sabbath. And they were really good at keeping some of the ceremonial laws, looking good at church on Sunday kind of thing. But then they would go out into the workplace the rest of the week, and they were full of greed. And they were stealing and, and committing adultery in ways that they could skirt around the law. And so Paul says the Gentiles blaspheme God because of their interactions with you during the week. You look really good at church on the weekend, but you're terrible during the week how you treat people. And as a result, the name of God is blasphemed because of you, and you're not saved just because you're circumcised if you're living that way. Now, of course, over the centuries, many millions of Christians have loved this Romans 2 passage because it doesn't seem to speak to us. And I can't tell you, even commentaries and stuff, it's just, ugh, lots of anti-Semitism in there yet as well. And lots of Christians over the years have loved to read Romans 2 as those bad religious Jews. But before we get too high on our high horses here and at those religious Jews, I want to draw for you some parallels. Because I think the same thing is true of many of us as Christians today, and I think if Paul was speaking to us today, he would switch from who he's talking to, and he would speak to religious Christians instead. Because we have certain things we're good at keeping. We have certain things we're, it's, we're, we're good at looking good on weekend. We're good at looking good at sale. Some of us, we're good at talking down at the rest of the world. You know, we kind of feel pretty good because we don't do drugs and we don't go to bars and we don't do that other stuff like everybody else does out in our culture. And we just kind of look at the culture on Facebook. We make all these posts and our attitude is basically the rest of the world is really wicked and I have it all together. But how many of us and how many religious Christians who feel like they're doing really good in a few areas have completely missed what this book actually tells. See, that's what happened with the religious Jews. 
They had the Old Testament. They majored on the minor things and totally missed out on the things that actually mattered to God. Paul said, you go out and you do exactly what the law tells you not to do. How many religious Christians today feel real good about themselves because they look good on Sunday and the rest of the world doesn't? But then they go out into the world and they actually live completely opposite to how this thing says. What this book says is really important. This book says the most important thing is to love God and love people. This book says that the most important thing is to love God and love people, but do we go out into the workplace and the marketplace during the week and love people? I mean, it's real easy for us to look good on Sunday, to dress up nice and not swear and cuss when we're at church. Give a little bit of money here. We don't do drugs. We don't go to bars like everybody else. But then we go into the workplace and we don't get along with our coworkers. This book says one of the most important commandments in here is love your enemies. Do we love our enemies? I hear stories of lots of Christians regularly. People who, something bad happens to them, you know, on Facebook, they're attacked on Facebook, they attack right back. They go to work and someone takes advantage of them at work, they lash back, they're mad, there's fighting, sometimes Christian with Christian. This book says one of the most important things is love your enemies. This book tells us forgive those who hurt you. Do we forgive? Because how often do we see, and I put my own self in the spotlight, someone hurts us, do we forgive? Do we take them to prayer? Do we bless them? Because it says actually in here, bless those who curse you. Rather, many of us, we go out and we lash back and we defend our rights and we take them on. It just becomes this poisonous thing. We miss, and the name of God is blasphemed often because of Christians. Because of Christians. Talked to a salesperson once and said some of the worst people to deal with are other Christians. They'll come in, they'll tear a strip off your back, they'll attack you, they'll even be personal, they'll put, they'll put you in tears. Not all Christians, but sometimes it's Christians. All because they, that's how they feel they're going to get a better deal or because they feel they should be getting better service or because they feel you owe them something because there's a nick on their appliance or whatever, Right? So I'm going to yell and get mad and tear someone down so I can get what's rightfully mine. Well, excuse me, wow, I would like someone to show me in here where, you know, because you say, well, but I needed to get aggressive with them so that I could get that 200 bucks off. Boy, I'd love to find in here, if someone could just help me to find where it says in here that money is more important than people. Where in order to get the, right, the deal that's rightfully yours and to get what's rightfully coming to you, it's okay to tear someone down and rip into them and get personal and get aggressive because that's how you have to take care of yourself. Actually, you know what it says in here, 1 Corinthians 6? It would be better to be taken advantage of than to fight and scratch and claw for your rights. So it's easy for us to look good about some things. In some ways, we're no different than the religious Jews. It's easy for us to look good on Sunday, but we go out into the world oftentimes and the name of God is blasphemed because we don't do what it actually says in here, which is love people. See, just calling yourself a Christian is not what it means to be saved. A Christian is not someone who just says they're a Christian and goes out and lives however they want. A Christian is someone who actually desires to pick up their cross and follow Jesus. So I just want to put a couple of parallels up there between religious Jews and many of the cultural religious Christians today. Religious Jews thought they were saved just by being Jews and having circumcision. Religious Christians often think they're saved just because they're a Christian. 
Or they think they're saved just because they said a prayer once. Well, saying a prayer is a great start. And if it's followed by repentance and following Jesus, it absolutely is the doorway into salvation. But if you think that just because you call yourself a Christian and go to church and you pray a prayer once, that that makes you saved, meanwhile, you're, not, you're just out there living however you want, a self-centered life. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 2. He says you're not a Christian unless you're walking out the Christian walk. Religious Jews thought they were saved by knowing the law. Religious Christians today think they're saved by knowing the plan of salvation. That's what we think. If you just know the plan of salvation, you must be saved. And you can just live basically however you want. You can live for your best life now. Forget about life in eternity. As long as you know the plan of salvation, you go to church all the time, you're in. You say, but I thought all a person needed to do to be saved was believe in Jesus, right? All I have to do is believe in Jesus. You're absolutely right. The Bible says all you need to do to be saved is believe in Jesus. But do you know where we as Westerners get tripped up? On the word believe. We think the word believe is something that happens in my head only. So if I check off mental boxes in my head, I check off the mental box in my head do you believe that, God, that Jesus is God? Check. Do you believe he died on the cross for your sins? Check. And you check it off mentally. But it's not a thing of the heart. I never repented of living a self-centered life. I actually just want to add Jesus to my self-centered life. There's no desire in you to pick up your cross and cling to Jesus and follow him. That kind of belief, a mental assent to a few true facts, is not what the Bible means by believe. When the Bible talks about the word believe, it talks about not just a mental ascent to a few facts, it talks about a whole life saying, I want Jesus to be the master of my life. I'm not in charge anymore. It's actually what it means. When the Bible talks about having faith in Jesus, it doesn't talk about just a mental belief in my head. It talks about something that encompasses your whole body, your soul, your will, your emotions. It says, I want to hold on to Jesus and I'm going to follow him wherever he takes me. That kind of faith, that kind of belief saves you. doesn't matter how many bad things you've done in your life. Jesus washes them all away with his blood. He absolutely washes them away. It doesn't matter. You could be the worst, most perverted, most terrible person. And this book is filled with horrible people who got saved. People who committed adultery, people who murdered, Paul persecuted Christians who were radically saved. You can be forgiven of the worst of the worst things if you believe, but believe is not just something here. If you believe is my life is no longer mine, I'm hanging on to Jesus, you are the master and Lord and boss of my life. That's salvation. That kind of faith saves not just thinking a few few true facts about Jesus. James chapter 2, verse 19. James says this, you believe that God is one, because he talks about this, that it's not enough to just think something in your head. James 2, 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Demons aren't saved. They believe all kinds of true things about God. They know all about him, and they know what's coming, and they aren't saved. So, Believing in Jesus is not just something you do in your head. It is the act of giving your life to Jesus. It means repenting. I hate my self-centered, fleshly ways of living. I want you to be Lord of my life. Now here's the thing. That kind of faith will change your life. 
Mental assent to a few true facts. And this is part of the problem with the Christian church in the West today. It's too easy. See, in persecuted countries, you don't have this as much because you don't want to just check a box in your mind if you're going to be persecuted for it. If you're going to believe in Jesus, you're going to believe in him all in or you're not going to believe at all. Part of the problem in the West is that it's easy to come in and actually, I just want to live for myself and check off a few boxes in my head. And so what you have is a church often that's full of people who haven't actually given their lives to Jesus. So you say, well, how do you know the difference between saving faith and not saving faith? Well, saving faith Faith that saves, I mean, it's God who saves, but the kind of faith he responds to, saving faith, is a kind of faith that will produce results. It's a kind of faith that will produce results, which is why Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 6, that on judgment day, God is going to look at our works. Let's look at that again. If you can put that up there, darling. He will render to each one according to his works. Now, what is this talking about? Is this talking about, I have to do enough good things to be saved? No, absolutely not. Salvation has to be a free gift because none of us could do enough good things. We can't even do one good thing apart from God's help. And none of us could ever be perfect and none of us could ever do even close to scratch the surface. It'd be like trying to jump and touch the moon, you know? Whether you have a six-inch vertical or a 40-inch vertical, neither of you is getting anywhere close to the moon. Okay? So one person might be able to do a few more good-looking things than another person. You're still nowhere closer to being saved. You, God does not look at your works. When he looks on Judgment Day, he's not looking to see, did you do enough good things to be saved? Absolutely not. Absolutely not, because you and I could never do enough good things to be saved. But he's looking at our works. So why is he looking at our works? I'll tell you what he's looking at. He's going to look, and you are going to be able to see, and he is going to be able to see, and everyone else is going to be able to see whether you had saving faith or not. Because if you had saving faith, if you actually gave your life to Jesus, it will bear fruit in your life. It will bear fruit fruit in your life. That's James' point in James chapter 2. Look at this. James chapter 2 verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? I believe in Jesus. Okay? He says, well, then there better be some evidence. Can that faith save him? And the answer is no. This whole chapter 2 is all about him showing that it, it can't. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. True faith, saving faith, will always produce fruit in your life. If you have actually said, I want Jesus to be boss of my life, Jesus, I'm going to pick up my cross, I'm going to follow you, if you have made that commitment to him, it will show somewhere along the way. There will be evidence. There will be a trail of breadcrumbs that says, this person, even though they're still really messed up and they're not even anywhere close to perfect, has actually given their life to Jesus, and you can see it. Saving faith. I want to look at four things. Sign of saving faith. Four things here. First of all, the test of saving faith. Just so a bunch of you can go, whew. Some of you right now, it's like, I am very alarmed at what he's saying right now. Saving faith. First of all, the test of saving faith is not perfection. Amen. On Judgment Day, Jesus is not looking to see were you perfect, and if you weren't, you're not saved. Remember, your works can't save you. 
He's looking for breadcrumbs. He's looking for fruit. Did you have saving faith? Did you actually give your life to me or did you just check a mental box? He's not looking for perfection. None of us will be perfect. None of us will be even close to perfect until the day we die and we get resurrected. And some of us are just so broken. Some of you are so broken. It's because of the way you grew up. It's because of this. It's because of that. There's a hundred different reasons. You're so broken. And there's addictions that can come with that because you're messed up on the inside. And you can't get free of those addictions. And you live in them for years. And some of you, you lie in bed at night sometimes and you weep to the Lord because you wish you could change. Let me tell you something. Those tears are the works of faith. See, sometimes the work of faith is not victory. It's sorrow over your sin. That is one of the works of faith. Jesus looks down and he sees you weeping on your bed because you wish you could leave that bondage behind and he sees those tears in your bed at night and he says, that guy's saved and his grace wipes it all away. He holds none of it against you. He's not looking for perfection. But if you have given your life to Jesus, it's going to result in something. And that mom who just can't stop getting angry at her kids and she's just living her whole life at overwhelm. Maybe she's a single mom or whatever and she wishes she could just leave that anger behind and she blows up at her kids again and she lies in bed at night and she feels so absolutely awful and horrible and thinks, I'm a horrible mom. I can't see God's work in my life. God sees her her despair over who she is. He sees her calling out to him, Lord, I want to be delivered. And he says, that's saving faith. And his grace wipes it all away. He's not looking for perfection. He's looking for fruit. And if you have really given your life to Jesus, there will be fruit. The fruit won't always be perfection or victory. In fact, often it won't be. But part of the fruit will be repentance and sorrow over your sins, those are signs of saving faith. Religious activity is not the gauge of saving faith. A lot of people maybe are here today and you're worried, I don't pray as much as those pastors do. First of all, we're not superhuman. Some of you maybe think we're praying hours and hours every day, and maybe some of the other staff are. I still have four little kids. I'm not there yet, but I'm every day with the Lord, that's for sure. And actually, it's not for sure, because I still miss. But some of you think, I just don't pray enough. I'm not, I don't read my Bible enough. I don't memorize enough. Well, those are all really important things. That's how we connect to Jesus, is to spend time with him. But do you know, when you stand before him on Judgment Day, he's not counting up hours of prayer and Bible verses memorized. That's not the thing. The thing is love. Amen. You want to know what one of the most important signs of saving faith are, is that you will grow in love, not that you will be perfect. Not that you will be perfect, but that you will grow in love. That is one of the signs of saving faith. You will start over here, and when you give your life to Jesus, you can't give your life to him and cling to him and pick up your cross daily and follow him without over the years being impacted by, the one, or by one of the things he really is, which is he is love. And he will teach you to love your enemies. And if you spend time with him and you pursue him and you obey him and you give your life to him and it will hurt sometimes like crazy. And sometimes he will have to take you through massive amounts of suffering just to break you. But he'll love you the whole way through it. And you will come out on the other side and you will find yourself growing in love. You won't necessarily be immediately filled to the top with love. But if you have given your life to Jesus, you will grow in love over time. Read 1 John. If you want to see backup for that, read 1 John. 
First John is a whole book concerned with helping you figure out, do you have saving faith? And in there he talks over and over again about how the love of God is what shows his faith is real inside of us. It's huge. Well, let's finish this chapter now. Verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, and I could say the same is true of us as Christians. Nobody is a Christian just because they say they are outwardly. No one is a Christian just because they go through a bunch of motions and play a game. Being a Christian means giving your life to Jesus. Picking up your cross and following him. Verse 29, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, this is what God is looking for. He's not looking for a bunch of people who want to play games. He's not looking for a bunch of people who just want to check off some boxes in their heads so that they don't have to go to hell when they die. He's not looking for perfection. What he's looking for is people who actually say, I don't want to be in charge of my life anymore. I want to follow Jesus. And that cry inside you might be so weak. I'm not saying you've got to be on fire for God every day. Not even close. But there's something in you that says, Jesus, I need your forgiveness. If you just have that and it's inside and it's not just a game in your head, I actually need forgiveness and I want to follow him and I want him to be master of my life. It's a circumcision of the heart. It's a circumcision of the heart is what he's looking for. It's an inward thing. When we circumcise our hearts from friendship with the world, my whole goal isn't to live for this life. I'm living for eternity. I circumcise my heart from the need to defend my rights and be treated properly. I'm committed to turning the other cheek and forgiving those who hurt me and loving my enemies. This is what Christianity is. It's a life of holding on to Jesus and following him. Circumcise your hearts. So here's what I want to do. I want to finish this with, uh, we're just going to listen in prayer for a moment. So if you like to write things on your phone, haul out your phone right now. If you just want to write something in your journal and you have your journal here right now, you just haul out your journal. Just, if you just want to write something down on your hand, write it on your hand, grab out a response card from in front of you. I want to just take a moment and we're going to listen to the Lord as the choir or whoever, the worship team can come out here as soon as I'm done. They can. But I want to just take a moment at the end of this message. Eternity really matters. It matters a lot more than this lifetime. And I want to just ask God, I don't have, there could be a million different ways he wants to apply this message in your life, but what does it mean for you today? What is God saying for you today? I want to circumcise my heart. I want you just to close your eyes now, and we're going to take a moment just to listen, just a moment. I want each of us, the Holy Spirit is not just speaking to us as a group, he's speaking to us as individuals. Yeah, I want each of us to say, Holy Spirit, I want my heart to be circumcised, and then you just write down whatever he shows you. Maybe he wants to encourage you, Maybe there's someone you need to go and you need to ask forgiveness for, from. Maybe there's someone you need to forgive. But this is our chance to say, I want a circumcised heart. I want to obey Jesus. I want Jesus to be in charge. Holy Spirit, would you show each of us one thing you want us to take from this message today?
Thank you, Lord. We don't want to be a people who plays games with you, religious games. We want to be a people whose hearts are truly circumcised, who are following after you. Thank you for what you're going to do in our lives this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.